Hey listeners, I'm your host, Sally Holder. Join me each week to escape and be refreshed with stories of people who dared not to settle for the American dream. Go beyond just getting enough in life and live into a place where big dreams actually do come true. Each week, you'll discover why internal success is better than external success. Be prepared to redefine what your best looks like in life and free yourself from the guilt of wanting more. I am so excited for you listeners to hear this next interview with Lizzie Fortunato. Lizzie Fortunato is both a brand and a woman you need to know. See, Lizzie grew up in rural Delaware with a talent for creating things, especially accessories. But after graduating from Duke University, she got a job in New York City working for a PR firm. Despite her sneaking suspicions, she ought to be following her dream and her talent. See, we all fall into rock middle at some point, right? But she didn't stay there. Just 10 months later, she left the firm to start her own accessories company, with the help of her twin sister and a little gift of seed money, a story you're gonna hear more about later. In this episode, you're going to love how she so honestly and openly describes her journey to entrepreneurship. She and her twin sister, Catherine Fortunato, have made smart, calculated business decisions. They've stayed true to their company's focus and it's helped them create a multi-million dollar accessories brand anyone would be proud of. They've been recognized by Vogue, Women's Wear Daily, Harper's Bazaar, and even the New York Times. And they did all of this despite launching in 2007. See, their companies survived the Great Recession. In fact, they even used it as a time to benefit the company. So how did they do that? And how did they do that when so many other companies were going out of business? And then in 2011, they expanded into leather goods. How did they know when to expand or into what markets, right? How did they choose leather goods? Well, listen to all of these answers in this episode of Hitting Rock Middle. These answers are answers to some of your burning questions, questions I get from clients every single day. And I cannot wait for you to listen to this next episode. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I had to share something exciting with you. If you feel like you aren't getting where you want to be in your career or success isn't feeling like what you envisioned, I've created something just for you. Go to sallyholder.com or head to the link in my show notes to answer 10 quick questions so I can help you figure out if you need to be bolder in your career so that you can have the success you truly desire, not just the benchmarks you've been told you should hit. I can't wait for you to get your results. Feel free to share them with me via email or even tag me on Instagram. Now, back to the episode. All right, listeners, I am so incredibly excited for you guys to hear from one of my good friends and one of the most creative people that I've ever met, Lizzie Fortunato. She and her sister are the founders and creators of the Lizzie Fortunato collection, correct? 
That's Lizzie? correct. Um, I, my name is Lizzie. I am the creative director. And then my twin sister and business partner um, is director of sales and operations. And we have an accessories brand based in New York. Amazing. It is seriously one of my favorite brands out there. Every season, you guys are always kind of pushing the envelope. So I can't wait to dig into more of the details about how you got where you are and um, hear all about the company you've created. So let's just kind of get started with the beginning. Um, you know, where did you grow up? And tell me a little bit about um, kind of your life up to the point of starting this amazing jewelry and accessories company. Sure. Um, we grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which is about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Um, grew up in like a pretty suburban, almost rural environment. Like, for example, Domino's Pizza didn't convert to our house because we were a little bit too far off the grid. Um, <laughs> so it, yeah, so it, it, it was a far cry from New York, um, but we were kind of situated about halfway between New York and D.C. So my parents would bring us to New York and Washington to go to museums and stuff. And it was a pretty idyllic upbringing. Um, Catherine and I have a younger brother who's only 22 months younger than we are. So the three of us would, you know, play outside until 8 p.m. when the sun set in the summertime. And we were fortunate to travel a lot. And my parents um, gave us so many awesome opportunities, but really encouraged um, education and adventure and they were like the perfect balance of encouraging us to explore and discover what we liked, but also, you know, being strict enough that we wanted to perform well in school. And Catherine and I were incredibly motivated. Obviously, you both were <laughs> motivated because both of you ended up at Duke University, probably one of yeah. the, the best institutions <laughs> in the country. So uh, what took you to Duke? Sure. Well, we were definitely, I would say, type A. So while we, um, while we were like, you know, adventuresome, like really, you know, fun loving kids, we were also the type of kids who would like stay up all night studying for like a history test in eighth grade. And I wish someone had shook me and said, this test really doesn't matter. But we were pretty type A and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We went to a small school um, that was pretty academically rigorous and we definitely wanted to excel. And when it came to applying for college, we you know, wanted to go to a good school and really just like set high expectations for ourselves. And I think in part due to kind of the great example my parents had set again, where they were like, you know, not deliberately putting pressure on us, but always had high expectations for us and always afforded us with so many opportunities that then we wanted to kind of make them proud. And so um, our mom actually is a Duke alum. And when it came to applying for college, she encouraged us to apply there. We both applied to a, a handful of schools. And it's interesting, every school treated us the same. There wasn't one school that let one twin in and didn't let one twin in. So while we weren't originally committed to going to the same college, by the time we were kind of narrowing down our selections, we both landed on Duke and we decided to go together. And we didn't actually room together freshman year because all of our friends told us that would be copping out, but we did end up there together. And we're so grateful that we ended up in the same place because it's what allowed us to lay the foundations for our business. So listeners, if you don't know this about me, I also have a twin sister. She's an identical twin. Um, we are identical twins, excuse me. And 
we too went to the same university. So much like you're saying, Lizzie, we stayed together, but we did opt, I guess, with the cop out and room together at Vanderbilt um, and had that type of type A environment. So I really relate to what you're saying. Yeah, we do. I get it. Living together. um, Junior and senior year, we lived together. But prior to that, Catherine actually did a semester abroad in Barcelona and I was it, uh, doing an exchange with NYU during that time. So we had a tiny bit of time apart, but it wasn't much and we've pretty much been together ever since then. So we're, we're pretty connected at the hip, but we feel so lucky to be that way. Absolutely. So when you were going into Duke or during your time there, were you, you know, dead set on creating an accessories brand at that time? It's such a good question. I definitely was not dead set on it. I've always been super creative and interested in design. In high school, I made my own prom dress. Um, I was always going to bead stores in high school and making things. And I was like, you know, taking apart clothing that my mom had gotten me and remaking it. And I think it was in fifth or sixth grade that I told my mom I had to go to pattern making and sewing class. And it was this little class and it was me and a bunch of like 60 year old women. (laughs) And I was like, 13. Um, so I had always been interested in design, but I think I considered it something that was just a hobby and a pastime. And I'm one of those people who like gets a little project in my mind and like can't put it to bed. Like I would be, you know, 16 or 17 years old and be working on making a skirt and it would be three in the morning. And my parents are like, turn the lights out. And I'm still sewing away because I can't let something rest until it's perfect, until it's just how I love it. And so this was kind of like a hobby back burner type thing. And I actually was studying English and art history, making jewelry on the side. And very organically, girls would come by our dorm room and say, are you the sisters that make jewelry? I see you guys around campus wearing all this jewelry. Someone said you make it. And I considered it such a hobby that I was, oh yeah, do you want a piece? I'll make you something. And my sister is definitely the entrepreneur of the two of us. And she was one who was like, oh, we'll sell you something. So before long, we were selling pieces out of the dorm room. And then Catherine was actually waitressing at a restaurant in Durham. And she asked them, um, you know, is there a day that you're closed? We want to host like a cocktail hour and sell jewelry here and do a trunk show. So we started these very informal trunk shows at Parazad's in Durham, North Carolina. um, Around our sophomore, junior, maybe end of sophomore year of college. And it was amazing. Like we had a great demographic down there because there were a lot of fashionable girls and not too many places to shop and we had this little breeding ground for what turned into our business um but even with that said we thought oh we'll graduate college and get real jobs and we did mine was more brief than Catherine's was I worked in fashion PR at Paul Wilmot Communications for about 10 months after graduation Catherine was at Goldman Sachs for about three years after graduation so she was kind of working nights and weekends while I founded the business but We definitely thought, hey, we've had this great education. We need to go get real jobs. And we didn't think this could be our real job. I love that. And I was actually just about to ask you that. So it leads in really well. Thank you. Um, You know, something that I find that women I'm coaching or women I've interviewed on this podcast have all struggled, and me included, with, you know, following their passion because they associate the thing that they're really good at with something that they ought not be paid for because Mm -hmm. it comes so naturally to them because it's something that comes from their heart and soul. The assumption is that it can't be something that they do for a living, that it needs to be something they do as a hobby because they love it so much. And 
So something I'm really passionate about sharing is this idea that that's the thing that you ought to pursue. And that's the inclination, actually, that that's the thing that should be your living. So what were some of the pressures, I guess, that you experienced at Duke and, you know, that said to you, uh, go out and get that kind of more formal job? And then how after 10 months did you make the decision to change and say, no, this is not it. It really ought to be in this, um, you know, accessible world. Yeah, well, the pressures were definitely high at Duke. Um, our senior year, and I think this is pretty standard, but like tons of recruiters come to college campuses. And especially at Duke, there was every bank on Wall Street sent a recruiter, tons of um, consulting companies sent recruiters. And I can remember there was just this constant hum among all my friends of like, oh, I just met with McKinsey. I just met with Goldman. This place is offering me this much money. And the figures of money that they were talking about were so mind-boggling to me. And I suddenly felt so nervous because even if I wasn't going to start my own thing, I was still entering some field of work that was not going to be paying what banking or consulting was paying. I was probably going to end up at a magazine or again in fashion PR or something like that, where you're getting paid pennies. And I didn't even know if that's what I wanted to be doing, but I just thought for someone who's interested in fashion and writing and who study English and art history, you probably end up at Condé Nast or at a PR firm or at something like that where you're not making much money. And it was really nerve wracking to think, oh, I'm going to move to an apartment in New York that's expensive and my cost of living is going to be high. And all my friends are talking about how they just got signing bonuses with an investment bank. That's like their signing bonuses is more money than I'm going to make in my first year. So I definitely remember feeling really intimidated by that and not wanting to have the conversation of, who are you interviewing with? What are they offering you? Because no one was offering me much of anything. And that was intimidating. Um, I think the fact that my sister was entering that world was, was overwhelming for me and in a way comforting for me. We have such a positive relationship where I knew that if I was ever like in a pinch and was like, I need to borrow money, Catherine, we have such a wonderful relationship that I know she would be there for me. With that said, we've always been on the same car. Like we had gone to high school, had the same babysitting jobs, had the similar summer jobs, um, had similar jobs in college. So never in my life had I been in a point where I'm like, oh, my sister's going to be so much wealthier than I am. And that was the first time I experienced that um, mindset. And that was, again, a little scary because we'd always been in the same footing. Now suddenly sh she was going to be taking this big jump up. And I take comfort in knowing that we're not competitive and that she would help me out if needed. Um, but it was definitely intimidating hearing how people were going to go make all this money. And so when I started my fashion PR position, which again was paying pennies, I was happy to have the support of my sister if I needed it. And I was like really frugal at the time and, you know, eating nothing fancy, like, you know, the dumplings on the Lower East Side that were four for a dollar for dinner. So I was the classic ramen meat. noodle days. Exactly. The classic ramen noodle days. Um, so it wasn't impossible. And I think the overlining of making no money was it made leaving the job so much easier because I wasn't making that much money and I wasn't loving it. So I was like, okay, well, what's the point of this? It would be one thing if I wasn't loving my job, but I'm making a million dollars and they're going to keep me here, but I'm not making that much money. So I don't understand why I'm staying. And it was interesting. A lot of people were like, well, stay for a year at least. It looks good to have a year on your resume. And I kept thinking to myself, but if I 
kind of jump off the deep end and try my own business, then who cares what it looks like on my resume? Because no one's going to look at my resume. I'm just going to try this thing of my own. So after 10 months, I gave notice. And again, it was super scary because I like didn't have much savings. And I was like, how am I going to make this work? But the fortunate thing was the, the um, kind of breeding ground that we had cultivated that Duke had moved with us to New York. And I, so I still had customers saying, hey, do you still make jewelry? Or like, um, I'm working at Marie Claire now and my editor is looking for blue necklaces. Can you make something for the magazine? So I did have those few connections that I was really willing to take advantage of and try and like get press or sell things to customers in New York. And I was like willing to do that hustle if it meant getting out of a job that I didn't like. Um, yeah. So um, it felt like a really big risk, but I wasn't leaving much financially on the table. That certainly does make it easier. Um, mm-hmm. But it still sounds like you had a lot of people kind of throwing the usual comments to you, which are stay, you know, stay yeah. because, you know, it'll look better on your resume. Can you think of any? Mm-hmm others because I love to bring these phrases to people's attention just so uh-huh. that if they're thinking about making a move and they're listening to this podcast they can hear some of the the, the common things that people say in order to attempt to quote unquote protect us from right. you know entrepreneurship or protect us from you know something bad happening and I know that people have the best intentions but they're actually speaking from their own places of fear and that's sure. what I've found and so they're sharing you know their concerns with you so what other kind of common phrases did you hear as you were making that transition that you had to kind of combat or overcome Sure. I think, um, well, on the one hand, I was fortunate because a lot of people did also support me, but I think the, the, the people who, you know, make you kind of hesitate are the ones who are saying things like, oh my gosh, you're going to have to work all the time. And like, maybe selfishly, you're very social with that person. They don't want you to have something that consumes all your time. Um, this was like right around the time that I was breaking up with a college boyfriend. And I think there was a concern of like, are you going to dedicate more time to a new business than you are to your friends or to your significant other? Um, I think that people also like like having, um, you know, the boxes of like, okay, we work from nine till seven and then we meet for happy hour, whatever it is. And disrupting that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Um, So there were all those concerns and, and hesitations with that said, the people closest to me, my sister and my parents, very supportive of it. And I think they all kind of thought, you're young, why not try it? And had they not been supportive, it would have been much, much more difficult for me. I think a lot of my friends um, have parents who may have said, you know what, New York rent is expensive. You need to stay in a job that has a paycheck because we're not helping you out. And my parents were not really willing to throw money at me. They were saying like, if this doesn't work, you're going to go get a job in a few months because we're not paying your rent. But they were supportive. They were like, if you want to try this and try and make it work, we support that wholeheartedly. So while they weren't really wanting to be my financial safety net, they did give me some words of encouragement that allowed me to take the plunge. And I think without that, I definitely wouldn't have. And had I had parents who had said, this is too big of a financial risk, I don't think I would have ever been able to do it. So 
I love that. And and I think that we all have those voices. If we'll tune out the ones that are throwing that negative information at mm-hmm. us and we'll just stick with those that have the support, then we will allow ourselves to continue to follow our intuition, which I think Definitely. is always going to be leading you on the right path. And, and sometimes that negative voice is even just yourself. Like one thing I was really nervous about was being at home alone all day. I I couldn't afford a co-working space and co-working spaces were way less um, common. This was back in, I left in 2007, my job. So 12 years ago, like there weren't reworks on every corner like there are now. I couldn't have afforded that anyhow. And I was in this like tiny little apartment and I kept thinking to myself, like, is it going to be crazy that I'm not going to have human action interaction really all day? My um, best friend who I lived with and my sister both had, she was in school and my sister was at work like a million hours a day. I was like, I'm not really going to see anyone all day. I'm not going to have colleagues. I'm not going to go take meetings from a coffee shop because I don't have any money to like sit at a coffee shop all day. So one big internal concern was like, is this going to be so isolating? Um, And that was something I had to kind of get over. And so there are those internal voices as well that might stand in your way. Thank you so much for being honest about that. I mean, that is something that I think so many of us who are looking to make a transition will kind of hold in and not talk to anybody about. It's like, I realistically just can't envision what my day would look like if I were an entrepreneur or if I were all on my own. And that's one of the things that they're really thinking about is like, I can't imagine just being by myself. So I love you being honest and saying that was a concern and I jumped in and did it anyway. So you made the transition in 2007 after just 10 months and you said that you weren't making a ton of money, um, but you started this company and you just suddenly had a million dollars in capital fall into your lap or something, (laughs) right? I mean, that's what what so many people think like, oh, we'll just start a new company that's an accessories, you know, line or any line that would be in the fashion world, anywhere would take millions, but I think you did it a different way. So share with us how you did it. a very different way. And I have to say in full transparency, if I was doing it again now, I don't know if I would do it the same way. I might try and find investors or raise money, but I was really young. I was 22, 23 years old. I didn't feel like I needed a lot to live. Like in terms of paying myself a salary, I was like, I don't really need a salary. I can like, as long as I can pay my rent, like I'll be okay. And I was really willing to be very scrappy. So the business was kind of like this fledgling little thing that we had brought from Duke with us where we had these customers who had followed us at Duke and they would reach out. And even when I had my job for 10 months, they would say, I have a wedding that I'm going to, can you make me a necklace? And I would make a necklace and it would be like a few hundred dollars here, a few hundred dollars there. I had a few stores that were interested just from word of mouth. But again, these orders were tiny and the store orders were consignment orders where I was making things giving it to the store and only getting paid if it's sold. So the income at that point was like very, very low, but it was, there were like sporadic little moments of like getting some cash, which was good. Um, the, in August, after I quit my job, so August of 2007, our birthday is August 26th and Catherine was at Goldman and had been there for a little over a year at this point. And I woke up and I had been really stressed of like, do I keep, at this point, I think I had been working on the business and not had left my job at this point for like three months. And I woke up and she had left a birthday card on the kitchen counter of our tiny apartment with a check for $10,000. And the card said, 
I think we need to just go for it and try and make this business. This is our seed money. Let's see what we can do. And it was like all the income she had made from Goldman Sachs. And I was just blown away. And like, it was the greatest gift because my parents weren't really willing to give me that money and no one was giving that, me that money. So she used her Goldman Sachs money that she had made to date and put it into the business. And that was our seed money. And we've never raised money since then. So we started business with 10 grand, um, which all came from my sister. And that is amazing. She, <laughs> I, I, I have chills yeah. <laughs> on my face. I mean, a little bit of tears yeah. in my eyes too. I'm not yeah, it's, it honestly still makes me emotional when I think about it. Like, I don't think I could have started it without that money. And she was so gracious and also just such a believer in me. And this wasn't, um, this was a gift to both of us. Like she was my 50-50 partner from the beginning. She was putting in nights and weekend equity and she had put in that cash. I was certainly working way more hours than she was, but she knew like if we were going to start this, that's what she could give at that time. And she was super happy to give it. And that's how we started the business. Um, and the thing I will say about our business is it's not, in, unlike some businesses where you have to buy a huge piece of machinery or you have to invest in, I don't know, some kind of overseas production or something. Our business is not so capital intensive. It was incredibly intensive with our time and our hours and our labor because we didn't have a salesperson to pitch stores. We were the sales piece of person. We were the manufacturing. We were the person shipping the box. We were the person dealing with customers. We were literally doing everything. But in terms, if we could work for free in terms of the capital investment, it didn't have to be huge. So with the first $10,000, I used that money to buy materials, um, hire a photographer to take some pictures of pieces, put together like my first professional kind of like lookbook. And believe me, it wasn't that professional. And then with the, that imagery and that first kind of collection, I started pitching stores. And that's when things became more serious. Because once I got one store, then it was easier to get another store. And then it was easier to get another store. And it was incredibly slow and organic growth. But the growth was sustainable to the point where we didn't have to raise money. So two questions. I mean, I have so many for you because the story is just absolutely wonderful. (laughs) I'm just smiling from ear to ear. But the first is when you started it, did you have a real long-term vision for what you wanted to create? Like, did you have in your mind's eye, like, we're going to be a multi-million dollar company that sells to, you know, every major retailer um, from the beginning? And, um, how in the world, if you did have that type of vision, did you know how to get started? Because that becomes one of the, you know, number one stumbling blocks for many female entrepreneurs. They come to me and they say, I would love to be, you know, in this field. It is my passion, but I just don't know how. And so how did you know where to begin towards that long-term vision? I think if I had that long-term vision, it was incredibly abstract and like high in the sky. And I don't think I actually thought about that often, maybe to a fault. We were so busy and so overwhelmed with the day-to-day that we never pushed pause to even really think about the future. And that's one of the things that I say, if I was doing this now, I might do a lot of things differently. I might raise money. I might start with a business plan. We didn't even write a business plan until two years in or something because we literally didn't have time. And so now 12 weeks, 11 years into my business, I think that I would write a business plan in the beginning and I would think about my long-term goals and maybe maybe it was a blessing, maybe it was a curse, but I really didn't even push pause to think about long-term goals. And so I I guess the business just kind of carried itself because it was like every day was a new adventure and I was tackling every day. 
just on a daily basis and I couldn't really think ahead more than about 10 hours. Um, Sometimes that is the best, best (laughs) scenario because you're just taking the next step, right? You're just totally walking the next step in the path. Totally. And that does take you when your business is really nascent. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Like, and when your business is really nascent and like in those early stages, you have so much adrenaline that you can kind of like, just that, that excitement of tackling the day is like, so, you know, huge. And like, you feel so much energy around that, that you almost don't even want to push pause. And now, now that I'm in it is more when I want to push pause and say like, am I doing things correctly? Have we hired the right people? Like now is when I'm asking so many more questions, but in the beginning, I didn't have a team. I didn't have an office. There, there wasn't a lot to question. It was just go, 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 go. Um, so again, it was really scrappy and it was really just kind of like see where the day takes us. And hopefully we go to bed having gotten further along than we went to bed yesterday. And you just hope that every day takes you a little further. And it did. And there were certainly like so many hiccups, but then there were also achievements that made you want to keep going. Is there one in particular that you can think of a particular achievement that you had early on that you thought, okay, this is an indication to me that this is a good thing that we've created. We, we need to keep going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were a few. Um, in the very beginning, I don't know if you remember, but in, in the lots, there was this website called Daily Candy. You remember that? And I do remember. we were obsessed with it. It was kind of provided city guides and it started in New York and for a while it was just New York, but then they opened other city guides and like Chicago, LA, Dallas. Um, and it basically profiled cool happenings in the city. So in New York, it would be like, oh, an amazing t-shirt brand has opened on the Lower East Side. Go check it out. And we were featured by Daily Candy within the first year or two. And it was such a game changer. Suddenly stores were like reaching. And it was so funny because we didn't even have an office. So I think the phone number they listed on the Daily Candy article was my cell phone. So I literally, with my, I love that. my Delaware area code, which I still have. And um, so stores were calling my cell phone. And that, that was like a big game changer. And then also early on, um, a necklace that I made was featured on the cover of Women's Wear Daily, which is like the trade publication that's the pinnacle of, you know, the industry and what all the industry reads. And I actually had a friend who was working at W Magazine and she, I didn't know it was going to be featured and she was going to work and I guess at a newsstand and saw it and she called me and she was like, are you awake? Get out of bed, run to the newsstand, pick up Women's Wear Daily. And I like, my jaw dropped. Like there was a huge necklace that I made on the cover of Women's Wear Daily and I couldn't believe it. And so when you have credentializing moments like that, you definitely feel so invigorated and you feel so proud and excited. But then it's also really um, helpful in terms of ingratiating yourself with buyers and stores when you can go into a store and say like look we have this amazing press we're on the cover of women's wear daily are you interested in looking at the line and so those stepping stones really helped us to gain credibility and again they weren't a dime a dozen but when they happened we really kind of milked them for all they were worth and tried to get um levers with buyers and other people that we needed to you know make ins with so that was very helpful well, one thing I love is, is, and you just used the exact word I was going to use, so we're so in sync, is is the word leverage. Um, you know, that also tends to be something that women shy away from with the feeling that they are, you know, using the relationships that they have for 
you know, a bad reason. Um, and what I loved is that you said that when you moved there, you reached out to the people, um, you know, that you knew from your Duke network, both when you were with the magazine and then when you launched this company and that you continued to leverage those relationships that you had coming out of Duke. And then, um, you know, so I would love for you to kind of talk to people about, you know, why you did that and how you were able to kind of leverage those relationships instead of shying away from them. Because I do find that people, you know, get really worried about, oh, I'll burn a bridge or, you know, that's just, like I said, doing something bad to be able to kind of connect with the people that they know about the products that they have. Yeah. Um, I think it's such an important point you make about like reaching out to people and taking advantage of those relationships. And it certainly was not easy for me. I am like, more introverted than not and this business has taught me how to be an extrovert but given the opportunity I would love to just like sit behind the desk and make stuff all day and never have to talk to anyone so I I was like super nervous to reach out to people and I didn't really want to so didn't come naturally and it wasn't something where I was like oh I'm gonna go like wine and dine and meet people and like call these people I knew at college and see if they want to buy something um it was definitely something I had to, that was like a a pain point where I had to push myself. And, um, I would say that goes on the list of challenges of starting the business, but it was a challenge that I kind of had to face and then deal with because I recognized that if I didn't take advantage of these relationships, I just wasn't going to get anywhere. And I wanted to get somewhere because I didn't want to go back to the fashion PR job. So it was kind of like, okay, well, it's this or nothing. So let's try and do this. But I would definitely have to psych myself up. I'd be like, okay, if you call this person and see if they want to host a trunk show at their apartment for you, then you can go like buy a latte or something like that. Like I would, I would definitely like motivate myself to make those calls. And it was the same thing with going into stores and kind of like cold calling stores or just walking into a store. It's something now that because my sister's director of sales, she handles, but at the time she had a full-time job. So I was doing it and I just hated going into stores and introducing myself. And so I would really like psych myself up for it and say, okay, I'm going to walk into three different stores today and give them my information and give them photographs and a business card. And I would then tell myself like, okay, if you do that, then I don't know, you can like watch TV or whatever it is. I mean, it's goofy, but sometimes you have to make those little personal milestones for yourself because there was so much of the job that was really fun in the beginning, but that part wasn't for me, but you know, you still have to do it. I love that. So I kind of refer to that as, uh, with people is you're either a carrot or a stick person. So (laughs) clearly you are a carrot, right? You're offering a reward to yourself as a result of doing something hard. Some people, like to withhold, which is the stick option, say, if I don't do this, then I'm not going to allow myself to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that those are, like you said, great ways to, to be able to self-motivate. So I love totally. that you kind of use that trick too. Um, totally. So over the years, we'll fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, you've gotten this started in 2007. You ride through the Great Recession. So I, I hate to skip over that really tough period. But, you know, we didn't have much to lose. The business was so small that it wasn't like we were a big business that then lost a bunch of sales. It was like a tiny business that had no sales. So even if we could get a few sales, um, growth was growth. So it didn't affect us in the way that it probably was affecting businesses that had been founded five or 10 years prior. We were so small and tiny at the time that um, 
there wasn't much to lose. And in, interestingly, 2008 actually was, and then into like 2010, 11, 12, was a pretty strong time for costume jewelry because you suddenly had a lot of stores that were dropping fine lines and dropping more expensive things in favor of a lower price point item. And our item, you know, was pretty accessible compared to a luxury um, semi-precious stone item or something like that. So that was a little bit favorable for us. Um, Ooh, I love that. It takes yeah, it, advantage it, of the market and being absolutely. able to recognize, you know, how you can leverage no matter what situation you're in, you can always use it for your gain and you absolutely. do that in your business. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. And the fact of the matter is even in recessions, stores are still buying. They're buying more conservatively, but they're still buying because they have to put something on the shelf because there are still customers who come in. So trying to um, position yourself in a way that you're like, okay, this is the market. This is the retail environment. They're not going to want something super expensive. What can I make an offer that feels fun and exciting and worthwhile in this time that people are really scared to shop? So we kind of like navigated that, but again, we didn't have a lot to lose. So it made it easier. Well, it sounds like what you really did too, is you said, hey, there's still a need out there. What is the yeah. need and how can I meet the need of my consumer, which is the retail store at that point? And let's just yeah. do that really well. And when you do that, yeah. instead of backing off what you do really well, then people will absolutely still pay attention to you. Um, and Definitely. clearly they have because your business has grown exponentially over you know, the last 11 years. So um, one other thing that I really wanted to get into with you as well that you've done over the last 11 years is you were doing accessories so incredibly well, but then you, you know, started to, um, you know, expand and evolve. And so I love talking to entrepreneurs that have already been through what I would refer to as sort of that 2.0 phase. Um, so you did really well with jewelry and accessories. And now one of my favorite items that I purchased this spring is your new belt, I'm obsessed with oh. it, guys. Me too. <laughs> it makes me so happy. Beautiful, such a cool category for us. So cool. Such a beautiful linen belt. So talk to me a little bit about how you had the gumption then to continue to expand and evolve and kind of what made you guys think about going into that space and tell our listeners to kind of what all is in within your business brand now. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, we started pretty exclusively with jewelry. Um, statement necklaces, like mixed medium pieces were kind of our signature. So a big necklace that might incorporate beads, leather, fabric, like multiple different materials. Um, and that's kind of the item that got us press and got us recognition. And then that, you know, also translated into statement earrings. And we um, do some bracelets and rings as well, but primarily statement necklaces and earrings. And we thought to ourselves, like, you know, a lot of the materials that we're using would work really well on a evening clutch. So we thought, like, why not make that? And we slowly, like, dipped our toe into leather goods, which now have expanded into tote bags and small leather goods. And then, um, like, little, like, evening couches and whatnot. And then we also thought, you know, if someone is coming to us for, like, that little accent on their outfit. Maybe they also want a headband. Maybe they also want a scarf. Maybe they also want a belt. So these are categories that we are pursuing. Um, belts have been an amazing category. And interestingly, many of the buyers that we work with say that belts at our price point that are like really cool and interesting, not just like a plain black belt with a sil silver buckle, 
are actually difficult to find. So that's another case of responding to market inquiry and then filling that hole. Um, leather goods, as you can imagine, are a much more sided market. So that's more of a situation of trying to figure out how do we fit into this market? What hole can we fill? There's a million cute bags out there. What does ours look like? Um, but we really want to fill these holes with our look and our um, and kind of just like our brand ethos. We never had the jewelry to get so big and huge that it was just like this mass market item coming out of an overseas factory and landing on the store shelf without us really interacting with it. We always wanted it to be something that kind of champions slow production and something that we could like stay passionate about. And as we thought more and more about that um, and how that might actually mean producing less or selling less, we wanted to think more about entering different categories so that we could grow our reach without necessarily overextending our distribution or our production. Because at the end of the day, slow, small production was still important to us. And we wanted to try and figure out how to maintain slow, small production, but still make money. So entering other categories was one of the ways that we thought to do that. That is fantastic. It, and it actually leads back to, you know, something that I'm really a big, strong believer in and that Simon Sinek praises, you know, and talks about that idea of why you're in business. And it mm. sounds like your passion around that sm slow, small batch production has really driven, you know, most of your decisions. And then all of the revenue streams kind of are created you know, based on that overall, you know, idea, which, which is your compass for the Definitely. business. And I just love that, you know, too often people will simply see a white space and attempt to go in it regardless of whether or not it actually fits in to why they originally got into business. And mm -hmm. it sounds like you're always going back to your why and asking yourselves, does this fit with who we are and who we ultimately want to be? And then, you know, will decide to go into that space rather than the reverse. And th that's probably contributed to a huge amount of your success. And, and one thing I would definitely, um, you know, compliment you guys on as well is that your pieces are so recognizable that they are you guys because they have that unique touch and they have that um, very, you know, distinct, um, you know, expression. Um, and I, I just love that. Thank you. We definitely like try and maintain that signature. Um, as you can imagine, it's, it's hard because it's such a trend driven um, retail environment. And so you get tempted to like design into a trend or do something that's maybe not necessarily so you, but we, we really kind of like try and check ourselves and say like, is this something that looks like us? Is this something that we're proud of? Is this something that we would wear? And as a result, we've tried to definitely maintain this very specific aesthetic. And then with regard to what you were saying about um, slow production, it's interesting. Like in some ways, we probably could have made so much more money and just become so much bigger had we just said like, okay, let's, let's move production. Let's open up distribution to tons and tons of stores and let's just like blow this out of the water. I think that we could have done that. And like, maybe I could also have been really happy having gone that route, but I think the longer I've done this, um, the more I realize how fulfilled I am by the route that we have gone, even if sometimes I want to pull my hair out because we're working with like local vendors who don't have huge capacity or 
the metalsmith out sick and then the order ships late or like there's always these hiccups with with the way our production goes but um you know we also are like very cognizant of the environment and very cognizant about how much stuff exists out in the world already so the fact that we are kind of going about this slowly and deliberately is something that we're proud of and has become really important to us as we see how detrimental fashion can be to our world um and everyone talks about how it's such a leading cause of waste and i don't want to contribute to that waste and while i love to design i have to figure out ways i can do it in a pretty thoughtful way well thank you for <laughs> all of that but thank you for just sticking to your guns and making that okay mm-hmm. and what i love is that you said to myself and all the listeners that it's okay to take your own route. And that's one of the biggest things that I want, you know, our listeners to be able to hear from other really successful entrepreneurs like yourself is that, you know, when you do take your own path, the one that you feel like is right personally for you and you stick with that, that you will find the ultimate fulfillment that you want and, and don't be, you know, persuaded by what is the typical or usual path that other people might try to convince you to take. Definitely. Um, there's a book actually that your readers might love and I, I don't want to butcher the name, but I think it's called Small Giants. And it's all about the power of being a successful small business as opposed to a successful huge business. And it's not saying small, like, you know, tiny, tiny, where you're still doing everything because we have recognized the importance of delegating and like maintaining some work-life balance. I know that's a hard thing but um but it's it's more about not you know the difference between hovering at 5 million as as opposed to exploding it to 50 million and maybe you could be a sub 10 million dollar business um that employs fewer people but that maintains um a really good cash flow and a really good quality of life and there are benefits to staying small. Um, And I think it's an interesting read. And it's also something that we kind of take comfort in because in some ways we know like what we would have to do to get to our business over like the next big hump might not be what we want to do. And we currently like our life and we work hard and we have this like small engine that works well for us. And we don't know that we necessarily want to change that, even if it means not getting to that next huge financial milestone, but maybe we're okay with that. What a great way for us to be able to wrap up. I literally could talk to you all day. It's so Uh, fun talking to you, Sally. (laughs) We may have to do this again sometime soon because there's so much more that I could talk to you about. But um, most importantly, I know that our listeners are going to want to check out your pieces and be able to shop from you. So if they want to do that, where should they go? Absolutely. Um, you can find almost everything, including exclusives that aren't available in stores on our website, which is www.lizzie, Fortunato.com. Um, follow us on Instagram at LFJewels. And then Sally's beautiful twin sister, Stacy, has a shop in Charleston, South Carolina, Hampton Clothing, that carries a huge assortment of the line. And she also has some really cool exclusives and has been a supporter of the brand for so long. Um, and championed what we do. So I always encourage people to check out Hampton Clothing as well. Well, thank you. And thank you so much, Lizzie, for your time. I truly appreciate that you have 
definitely inspired a lot of women with this podcast. I'm sure I'm very certain of that. Um, it's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for all of your thoughtful questions. So if any of you guys are feeling like you're holding yourself back, but you know that you have more to give, don't worry, I have you covered. You are going to want to check out my free download on my website. So it is Sally Holder, S-A-L-L-I-E-H-O-L-D-E-R.com. Go there and download my five tips to earn more and work less. It will get you started on this journey of getting yourself out of rock metal and being able to follow your passion just like Lizzie did. So check that out. And thank you so much for listening to the Hitting Rock Metal podcast. I'm your host, Sally Holder. Remember that you can always find out more about me or about this podcast by clicking on my website that I just offered. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you are listening to it right now. And please leave us a review. It really goes a long way and helps out. We'll be back next week with another empowering story of dreaming beyond the American dream. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.